Coming up, surgery in the sun, Don Loche on concerns around the new hospital in Spain. Another fine mess, who will foot the bill for building defects in thousands of apartments? And Thonishta says we're not taking our fair share, but where will we put the next wave of Ukrainian refugees? Good afternoon and welcome to Saturday with Katie Hannum. My panel today... Robert Troy, Fianna Fáil TD for Longford Westmeath and Minister of State for Trade Promotion, Digital and Company Regulation. Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD for Meath East and Spokesperson on Climate Action Communications Networks and Transport. And Rebecca Moynihan, Labour Party Senator and Spokesperson on Housing, Local Government and Heritage. You can text us on 51551, email us on saturday at rte.ie or you can tweet to at Saturday RTE. Now, a new hospital in Spain dedicated to treating Irish patients is to begin carrying out surgeries on patients in the coming days. The operations will be paid for up front by the patients, but reimbursed later by the HSE. It's the latest facility that Irish patients will be able to access under a scheme called the EU Cross-Border Directive, which allows an EU citizen to seek medical treatment in another member state. With numbers on waiting lists here in and around the one million mark, the Irish Patients Association is advising people to look at their international options for their hip and knee replacements, cataract procedures and weight loss surgeries. Professor Donal O'Shea is HSE lead, clinical lead on obesity and consultant endocrinologist at St Vincent's University Hospital. Good afternoon to you, Donal. Uh, good afternoon, Katie. Yeah, Donal, this new hospital... It's been built and it's owned by a Spanish hospital group, but a private company, Healthcare Abroad, has partnered with it and it's going to be pretty much dedicated to Irish patients. What do you make of it? Well, I think, um, you know, that partnership have clearly spotted um, a gap, if you like, in the market. And, you know, healthcare is a massive industry. And, and I like to distinguish between the healthcare profession and the healthcare industry. And industry has a bottom line, and that's profit. Uh, they see a scheme, the uh, EU border, cross-border directive, where effectively there is uh, a, a very good access to uh, financing uh, their operation and profiting, um, but it's outsourcing our healthcare. And, you know, we have to ask the question, do we want a health system that just generates waiting lists and then uh, gets them uh, treated in the private sector or abroad? Or do we want a healthcare system that is resourced and builds capacity? Um, And I think it's wrong to say uh, surgery for obesity is the same as having a hip done or a cataract done. Uh, Treatment of obesity is a pathway of care. There's a lot of pre-op workup and a lot of post-op care that needs to go on for years. And if you outsource your surgeries abroad for obesity, uh, you're still not building the capacity to treat severe and complex obesity. Now, Minister Donnelly, I think, gets this and is looking at building capacity for surgery for obesity. Uh, And I'm expecting uh, kind of an announcement on funding within the next couple of weeks. And that will be a huge step forward. But I think the bigger question is, do we just want to outsource our healthcare or do we want to build capacity in our system? We, we know, of course, this is a private business initiative, but we know as well there was a HSE official at the launch last week. So clearly there has been some engagement with the health service in relation to this development. When did you become aware of it? 
Yeah, I became aware when RT posted uh, the story and, and a couple of people within the obesity programme uh, sent it on to me uh, going, can you believe this? Did you know anything about it? And of course, I, I knew nothing about it. We have tried in the past to uh, outsource obesity surgery to the private sector in Ireland. And we've tried on occasion to use this um, kind of this cross-border directive to get our patients access to surgery because our, our patients need access to surgery. But uh, people with severe and complex obesity, to be honest, the private sector aren't really interested. They're a bit too much work. They might stay a bit too, too long in, in the hospital and their complication rate is going to be higher. But, but we do so, know, there, is there not a pathway? Because I've talked to people who have done this surgery uh, myself or who've, who've been who've had the surgery done on them themselves that's you know with people travelling to places like Turkey for weight loss surgery and I know people like yourself would warn people against that but this wouldn't be in the same category as that though um, I, I don't generally have a problem with um, you know the facilities that a cross border directive um, kind of scheme use uh, will be reputable facilities uh, and we use this scheme for patients where uh, with uh, other conditions where uh, there are kind of there are rarer, and really Ireland doesn't have uh, that kind of treatment, so they need to get it abroad. But for you know, I, I know one patient who uh, had his surgery done at half ten on Sunday night in a facility in Turkey. I mean, there is no healthcare facility can say it is operating in line with uh, even basic standards that's doing an elective operation at half ten on, on a Sunday night. Um, so you... you, you Why? Why, why? What are you saying with that? You're, they're just packing, you know... Okay, just, look, buy one, get one free applies to, to some of these surgeries and they're saying, you you know, with whiten your teeth as well when you're over and they're looking at, on it as a purely uh, cosmetic uh, procedure in the case of obesity surgery, which it absolutely is not. And there are risks for people with obesity uh, over and above people who don't have obesity with travelling and the risk of developing that, clots and things. That is even in a, a, an EU hospital where you, one presumes that there would be, you know, better oversight. Uh, I think I, I wouldn't have issue with the standard of care in this uh, Spanish facility if the HSE were at the launch and are approving it. Normally, a, a facility has to be available to public patients in the base country. So I'm presuming uh, that is also the same for this yeah, facility. Donald, I don't think the HSE would take responsibility for approving this hospital. I think they've said that this, that would be up to the regulatory bodies in, in the, the country where this hospital is based. Yeah, in the forms we fill in to do that, there's, uh, you know, we, we have to fill in forms to support the, the this process. Um, and certainly um, for some of the schemes, um, you, I have to take responsibility that it's um, a facility that's available to public patients there. Okay. Uh, can I just ask you, though, going back to your, your, your point about outsourcing this, I mean, are, would you be concerned it's creating a two-tier system that those with the money up front... Uh, you know, can access this, uh, but maybe others either they won't be able to access it at all, or or they'll have to maybe you know borrow uh, from the credit union or wherever. Yeah, I mean, uh, so this I know patients who've borrowed, I know patients who've remortgaged uh, their their houses to access healthcare abroad. 
Um, th- this will absolutely drive health inequality. Uh, will uh, my bigger concern here is that it will remove the appetite for building capacity in our own health system, and then you will never generate uh, an effective approach to waiting lists. You will just continue to generate waiting lists, which you outsource. And I can tell you, if healthcare professionals are just involved in generating waiting lists and aren't getting the opportunity to participate in the delivery of the full pathway of care for conditions, then uh, they will become very uh, disenfranchised and disgruntled. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, many thanks for that. That's uh, Donal O'Shea there. Um, Minister uh, Robert Troy, um, you're, up, you're down in our Athlone studio just to let our listeners know. Can you address that point there, that every euro that the HSE spends on these surgical procedures abroad is a euro that is not going into developing and funding healthcare in this country? Well, firstly, this is not a new scheme. This is a cross-border scheme that was introduced in 2011. It's part of a European-wide scheme. Um, and uh, Irish patients have been availing of it since 2011. 8,000 people availed of it last year. Uh, and it's a European scheme and we can't prevent uh, patients for, who wish to avail of it availing of it. Uh, what the government is, however, focused on is reducing... Should we be encouraging it? But I, I don't see HSE encouraging it. Uh, what well, I see, there, there was a HSE official at the launch, so what, we're not discouraging it, clearly. What, what, what I actually see is a private hospital operating in Spain, which your previous speaker has said is a reputable facility, uh, invited Irish journalists over. Uh, and because so many Irish journalists have over, they've, they've, they've actually managed, and maybe I've been very cynical now, but this private hospital in Spain has actually managed to get a lot of free publicity for their services is going forward. And so it's not the HSE that's endorsing this at all. Uh, From a government perspective, uh, we're focused on uh, reducing our waiting lists. And last year, in the teeth of a global pandemic, we were able to reduce our waiting list by 5%. That's 40,000 less people on the waiting list. And earlier this year... But but Minister, in the context of where the waiting lists are at now, 40,000 is a drop in the ocean, unfortunately. It was only 5%, but I was about to finish off. Earlier this year, uh, we launched a 2022 uh, waiting list uh, targets uh, and underpinned by 350 million euro. That's a target to reduce our waiting list by 18% by the end of this year. We're going to focus on uh, the 15 high fo- high volume inpatient day case procedures like cataract, hip uh, and knee replacements uh, to ensure that we bring our waiting list down by a further uh, 18% this year. So uh, despite the fact that we're coming out of a global pandemic, uh, the disruption that has caused to the HSC, there is very clear and targeted measures being rolled out by this government uh, to reduce our waiting lists. But is this part of the answer to that, Minister? But as I said, we cannot prevent any citizen from who opted to use this cross-border border services from availing of it. No, but are just you relieved to, because to, it, it to, is to, it is a safety valve, isn't it, to some degree? Just like, for, for, would you advise your constituents to come to you? And I know constituents, all of you, every TD in 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 the Dáil, every senator in in Leinster House will have constituents coming to them begging to to do something to to get up a waiting list. They're living in pain. Would you say, look, here is a way out for you? 
It's a matter of record that I organised a number of buses over the last number of years uh, to Belfast to help people avail of cataract surgery. My own mother was one of the people who was a beneficiary of this. Um, so it is it is an opportunity there where we've come from a peri- period where there have been large waiting lists. But in parallel to that, what I'm telling you is, and your listeners, is that government has a plan to reduce our waiting lists to have been reduced by 5% last year with a further plan to reduce them okay. by a further 18% this year. Okay, Darren O'Rourke. We're, we're, we're making great progress according to the Minister on our waiting list. Well, the, the Minister is, is must be completely out of touch or living in a different place than the, than the rest of us. Um, we know that waiting lists are increasing. They increased by 4,900 in June alone. They're up to over 900,000 on the nat- National Treatment Purchase Fund list, over 1.3 million in total where you take in community and diagnostics. Um, this is quite an incredible situation where in my own county we're, we're talking about closing hospital capacity and you have private hospital capacity being opened in in Spain to cater for what is a, a real and expected and known demand and it's, it is a damning indictment of government failure. It it's highlights the failure to deal with with the, the waiting lists here. Um, the would, minute, you, would you answer the same question that I put to the minute? Would you advise your constituents to, well, to take this up, to go con- down this route? Constituents, I, I've worked with th- this scheme. The scheme has been there for an extended period. When patients, when, when constituents come to, to, to TDs and others and to the HSE and to uh, Citizens Advice, they will avail of every opportunity that is there for them and they should be encouraged to do that because the the system, the public system is is broken for very, very, very many people. It is failing them. A symptom, an effect of, of these schemes though is that there is an inequity in it and as you said it, it is a safety valve there and it it, it covers over the, the underlying problems and the underlying problems are not being addressed by government in terms of, you see medical scientists are, are striking, you see uh, junior hospital doctors are on the, the brink of striking, we have over 800 consultant posts either vacant or, or filled on a tep- temporary basis unless the government deal with the underlying but capacity constraints they, they, they won't deal with the, the we, waiting list crisis. I, I, I mean this is your specialist area isn't it? Isn't this what your PhD that you're working on is in? Health Service Major Health Reform. Service Reform, yeah. What does introducing uh, you know these channels into a, a health service at a time when we're talking about you know making it a one tier health service under Slauncher Care, what is this going to do to uh, the health service. I mean, Don Lachey clearly worried there that you're just going to have people like himself, other consultants, generating waiting lists, putting people, seeing people to put them on waiting lists and then having them uh, actually the, the procedures done elsewhere. So, so there needs to be a twin track approach in relation to this. Um, the priority must be with dealing with the underlying symptoms, the crisis within the system. So it's capacity. We need to deal with the capacity constraints. But, but you're not in, saying this is a bad thing. No, no, as in, such. The, in the meantime, in the meantime, there will be a range of perverse incentives that that exist within the system. But the main driver has to be addressing the the the, okay. the, the, the capacity constraints. Patients will understandably avail of every. That's why so many people have private health insurance. Uh, Rebecca, this is a good option for people. You've got to—you have to recognise people will have seen that report and say, "Oh my God!" Straight down to the credit union for the loan, which, which I do think is why that they did it. Um, but I think Donald O'Shea was very clear there that one of the things this will do—it's a short-term measure that, as you say, is a safety valve um, for our own wait lists. And it's worth bearing in mind that the waiting lists are when people have got a diagnosis, and there's often, you know, years between actually getting on a waiting list and getting diagnosis and finding out what's wrong with people. 
Um, but this um, decreases capacity within the Irish healthcare system. There's no reason why we should be sending people off for, for, for very basic things such as cataract surgery, hip replacements um, and weight loss surgery that we should be building up the capacity of our own hospitals in order to be able to do what are relatively routine um, medical procedures. And the fact that there's the numbers there, and, and it's worth bearing in mind, the Irish government are also paying a portion of this as well. Um, and so it's costing us money and it's also costing us capacity to build up our own system, our own expertise, um, our own buildings, you know, um, and that's what's important to the health service is that we're investing in that kind of capacity that's there. Um, And it's an indictment to the health service that um, in 2022, and we will hear government in a month's time say that this is going to be the highest non-COVID spend and particularly focused in the area of healthcare, yet we still have people having to fly off um, in order to be able to get really basic surgery that should be available. And, and the other thing that would have struck people, Minister, when they saw that story this week is how long have we been trying to build our National Children's Hospital uh, here and the kind of money we're talking about in relation to this? And yet... Uh, privately, this 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 uh, consortium were able to put together this hospital and uh, at apparently a very uh, modest cost and have it operational for Irish patients in Spain. Yeah, look, there is a, a, an effort to ensure that our children's hospital is up and running in a timely fashion. There has been setbacks, that's widely acknowledged, but we want to ensure uh, that it is... The, it, Construction is finished in a timely way so that patients can benefit from that. It's just embarrassing though, isn't it? When you compare and contrast those two situations. This hospital built, I know it's not at the same level, but built for 60 million uh, in a very short period of time. And yet here we are still talking about the bills coming in and no children's hospital here. Well, you're right. You're not comparing like for like. Um, It is a different type of hospital, different size of hospital, different locations, uh, different cost structures. Uh, So it's not fair to compare like for like. But it is regrettable that the Children's Hospital is taking longer than what what was originally anticipated. But work is ongoing and it will be delivered uh, very shortly. But if I could come back uh, to some of the points that was made by your previous speakers in relation to, um, you know, as if no progress was being made. We are working towards the implementation of staunchy care. When you see things like the rollout of free cheek pair care for all our children, when you see the elimination oh, no, no, no. of... In fairness inter- now, Minister, that, that was supposed to have been delivered when? What was the first initial date for that? We're still being told it's a great win that we're rolling it out now. Well, it, it has been rolled out and the legislation to give effect for the elimination of overnight charges for children in hospital was... Uh, was uh, um, uh, published by Minister Donnelly this week. So progress is, is being made at all at a time when we're coming out of a global pandemic. Um, like So I, I think it's unfair to say that everything can, everything that once we want to achieve in a five-year time frame hasn't been achieved in the first two years of this government at a time when we were dealing with a global pandemic. OK, okay we'll have to leave that one there. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be talking about defects in buildings after this. Saturday with Katie Hannan on RTE Radio 1. Now, we've had Pyrite and we've had Micah and a report due next week is expected to reveal that more than 100,000 apartments across the country were not built properly and will require major works to be carried out in order to remedy fire safety defects and other problems. The total cost of making safe these blocks could run to close to €3 billion. Euro. So who should pay? That's one of the big questions arising out of this. And the other big question, can we be certain that construction projects underway today are definitely better and above board? Uh, Dr Deirdre Neeline is a barrister specialising in construction law and she joins me now. Uh, Deirdre, you're very welcome. 
Thank uh, you very much. You, were you. you can I ask you? Were you surprised? You know, from your knowledge of this uh, sector, were you surprised by that figure that we've been hearing this week that more than a hundred thousand apartments built between nineteen ninety one and twenty thirteen have been found to have defects? I wasn't surprised uh, when the Society of Church Surveyors addressed the Iraqis Housing Committee a few years ago. They indicated that the majority of apartments that were built over that period were likely to have uh, defects of varying kinds. So it did, it did not surprise me. And the breakdown didn't surprise me as between fire safety, water ingress and other types of defects. Unfortunately, fire safety particularly prevalent. And I think the estimate in the report that was reported on yesterday in the media is 40 to 70 percent of the defects uh, appear to be related to fire safety. And uh, like we're talking about, obviously, a, a period where there was a huge amount of building, a lot of build, build, you know, apartments went up very quickly. But the scale of what we're seeing now or what we're, we're, we're being told to expect, that can't be down to just a few cow, cowboy builders, right? I, I have always had a difficulty with the idea that, um, you know, there were a few bad eggs because really the scale of it has to tell us that this was a systemic problem right across the industry because otherwise how could you have such a high, high percentage of apartments presenting, you know, very serious defects but that were all kind of variations on a theme, fire safety, water ingress and a few other types of, of, of defects. So this was not a few bad eggs. This was systemic right across the industry, right across the country and bear in mind with apartments, it isn't kind of... As geographically sensitive as you know the problems with mica or the problems with pyrite, this was across the piece, right across the country, where apartments were being built, large developments, small developments, very high end developments included. Uh, and so, you know, I'm I'm aware of a number of that would have been you know really at the top of the market, expensive to buy at the time that have these types of issues. So, what was going on then? Well, um, it seems clear that there was the various failures along the way um, in relation to fire safety. It seems that one of the big issues was that uh, there was a lack of supervision, there was a lack of inspection. Perhaps there was problems with, you know, appropriate education and training for the workforce, for the people who were putting in uh, those elements of the buildings, bearing in mind that uh, fire stopping in a finished building isn't something you're going to walk in and be able to see. It's behind finishes. Uh, and, and people were aware of this. So if you have corners being cut at various points and if it's widespread enough across your development, then you could end up with very serious problems that aren't immediately apparent to somebody going in to do a survey. So these apartments had buyers sending in their own surveyors, banks sending in surveyors. But a surveyor walking around an apartment that you know, you're going to buy in 95 or 96 is not going to start opening up walls to check on the fire stopping. So some of these problems didn't come to light until people went looking for them or until other works were being carried out in those developments that highlighted the fact that there was no separation between apartments or that there was no separation around the penetrations between carrying services. Now, I know the industry and we were, we were hearing from the uh, Construction Industry Federation yesterday, uh, they will they are disputing that it was as widespread as as, as you, you would set out there. Uh, what, what would you say to that? I suppose the facts are going, to, are going to speak for themselves. I understand that part of the remit of the working group was to actually kind of find out the scale of it. Uh, and the working group itself 
is something that uh, partly came out of the Safe Houses report that was published in 2018. And the Safe Houses report published by the Rockford Housing Committee, having invited and heard from industry stakeholders, the construction industry themselves, um, people from the CIF, from professional bodies and experts, you know, myself included, that went in. I obviously set out the position in relation to remedies and why there were particular problems for people in recovering money to pay for defects. But the industry representatives and the industry bodies, such as the Institute of Architects, the Institute of Chartered Surveyors, they were all invited and they were all able to go in and say, this is what we are seeing from our members. So, so the, the, yeah, the research can... and the facts are going to speak for themselves. But, but we know that it's very widespread. It's been extensively covered in the media over years. And can I t- ask you then, because I'm just, your line isn't... Um isn't great, but I really want to ask this very important question. We're told that things have changed uh, since 2014 and we can be much more confident now. Can we be confident that that this isn't happening out there today? What changed in 2014 is a nationwide system of mandatory inspection and certification. Competent people have to be retained in order to design development. And all of that is very, very positive and good. And I've certainly heard anecdotally uh, that culture has changed. But what we haven't done is to introduce a national building regulator that would actually provide oversight, that would actually undertake the kind of uh, inspections and enforcements at a scale that would tell us whether or not things have significantly changed. We are still significantly under-investing in enforcement of building regulations and in our, in our inspection regime in the same way that we were back when all of the departments were built. So if you go to look at the Dublin City Council annual report for 2020, you will see two enforcement notices reserved for building control. Uh, a lot of building control authorities, I can tell you, will probably have served no enforcement notices in 2020 or ever, uh, is what I found when I did my PhD. And if you contrast that with planning, for example, Dublin City Council served 155 enforcement notices in relation to planning. If you contrast it with other regulated sectors, see much higher levels of enforcement. You see people being named and shamed and very high-profile action being taken by government. If we don't invest in appropriate, robust regulation on a national basis, I don't think that this position will change significantly. And I think we will see further defects and further building failures. So w- would it be fair enough or unfair to suggest that we're still dealing with light-touch regulation in this sector? Um, you know, people will fight with me about this, but it is light touch regulation. The, the, the system we have is a public, uh, public-private hybrid system. The advantage of it from the public point of view is that, it, it, you know, it's, it's not as expensive uh, as running a more robust kind of national regulatory system. But you, a lot of the people who are involved in those inspections and certificates are people who are being paid by the developers who are developing these, uh, in, you know, these developments. So, there are inevitable conflicts of interest going on there without any disrespect to any of the people who are involved. They have to be registered uh, and competent in order to carry out the work. But they are they are working for an employer. They're relying on them for a stream of work and they're inevitably going to be under pressure in carrying out inspections and certificates because they're answerable to their employer. And so there's a lot we could do to improve that system and to make it more transparent. So there's no obligation, for example, on somebody who carries out inspection and finds a problem. They don't have to notify the building Okay. Extraordinary De- when you think about it. Yeah, Deirdre, I'm, uh, the line is almost gone from us there, but many, many thanks for that. That's Deirdre Neeline there. Um, uh, Minister uh, Robert Troy, 
just before we get to the, the money issue, and it's a, it's a significant issue, can we talk about safety for a moment? Because the government must be concerned that there are now tens of thousands of apartments out there, people living in them with maybe young children, where fire stopping and other fire safety measures are not in place. That That's true, and that's why we can... Uh, gave a commitment in the programme for government uh, to carry out this uh, research uh, and Minister O'Brien last week or last year my apologies appointed the working group um, to look at uh, this very issue from a fire safety structural water ingress uh, defects to look at uh, properties constructed between 91 and 2013 uh, establish the scale uh, suggest a mechanism for re- resolving the defects uh, and uh, look at the potential costs my understanding is that Minister O'Brien expects that report within uh, the end of this month uh, he will take time over the summer to, to look through that report bring it to Cabinet in September and in the context of uh, the upcoming budget look at what measures can be introduced to ensure that these defects are rectified. And of course, then we get to who, who will pay for those uh, th- those um, measures to be rectified. Thánaiste insisting yesterday there will have to be some sort of levy introduced on the construction industry to pay for those works to be carried out, that it can't just be the apartment owners. Because we know a lot of apartment owners have already ponied up uh, very considerable amounts of money in some cases. Um, but then we heard from the industry yesterday, Hubert Fitzpatrick from a Construction Industry Federation. I think we can have a listen to what he said in relation to the idea of a levy being imposed on the sector. We are in, 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 in a highly inflationary environment within the construction industry at the moment. Any suggestion to impose a levy at this stage on a compliant industry that's meeting all the requirements in terms of regulations and compliance will actually only question the future viability of many developments that are, that are really needed in the, in the country today. We have a situation now where the entire costs of construction of any, of any building, be it commercial building, uh, house, apartment, or indeed refurbishment of any house or an extension to a house, that has to be paid for by the end user. And at the moment, with inflation that pertains in the sector, if you go imposing a levy of this nature, it'll end up being passed to the end user. Yeah, there you have it. That's that's from the horse's mouth. They're going to pass that on to, to house buyers or apartment buyers. Yeah, and look, that's why one of the tasks and in the terms of reference of this working group is to evaluate the, the potential costs and make recommendations in terms of how those costs can be met. And without, des- without question, there is a balance to be struck here to ensure that we don't introduce something uh, that would have an unintended consequence and prevent the much needed building of homes uh, for citizens who b- badly need them now. But at the same time, uh, we can't have a situation where the taxpayer is on the hook for everything. And uh, that's why uh, and it, the industry will have to come forward with proposals and we will have to look at uh, internationally where this has been done in the past. I heard the Labour leader during the week suggest uh, the UK model. Um, I know that Minister O'Brien is working with the AG in terms of uh, appointing a senior council to look at potentially following uh, quarries or potentially following contractors uh, who have knowingly committed uh, shoddy work. So we do need to ensure 
um, and that so those does, who are who have contributed s- to this problem yeah. uh, uh, pays a, 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 a cost to help address the. So, so the, am I hearing there, Minister, that the, the, that Minister Darrell O'Brien has an open mind at the moment as regards uh, a levy on the construction industry for these defects? Well, to be fair to, to Minister O'Brien, uh, he's the one that appointed the working group. Uh, he helped design the terms of reference and obviously signed off on them as minister. And one of the one of the terms of reference was to evaluate the potential costs and come forward uh, with funding proposals. He's going to receive that report in a matter of weeks. Uh, he's going to uh, look at it over the summer and come forward with proposals. But there is a clear acknowledgement uh, by government. It was uh, said in the, during the week by the Tornish in the Dáil that these effects have to be addressed. OK, but what about addressing the... Uh that what's going on right now and that point that Deirdre Nilayne raised there that there is an obvious conflict of interest out there at the moment that the person who is asked to sign off on building regulation that, that, that uh, a building is compliant with all regulations is paid for by the developer his, his, his employer the person he's relying on or, or she's relying on uh, for work surely that has an inbuilt is an inbuilt uh, problem well, you're effectively calling into question their professional integrity. No, we're um, not. No, we're not in any way. Yeah, yeah. We're, well, we're well, suggesting you are because you're, no. say, you're saying that you cannot act in an independent way because they're being paid for by the person uh, who's constructing. So you, you're happy and, with and, that, are you? And, and, and well, certainly, as someone who's going through a renovation and extension of a house at the moment, who needed uh, an independent, uh, qualified engineer to s- sign off at various stages to ensure uh, that the work was done well, I was happy to pay for that to get the clarity uh, that the. the Construction work was being done to a standard that would stead the, the, the te- stand so the test of time. So to be and we, a- we do know to be absolutely clear, this, to be absolutely I- clear, you have no issue at all. You think it's it's it's, it's a reasonable approach to to, to uh, regulation and certification of buildings to have uh, the person who certifies that that building that work has been done correctly to be in the employ of the person who has developed that property. The point I was making was... I, I, re- that's a yes or no one. No, it's actually not, to be fair. And if I could make the point, it, we have brought in the reform of the building regs in 2014. And as part of that, we require people to have independent uh, uh, professional people, engineers or architects to sign off at various stages of the construction. When they sign that off, they are doing so in the full knowledge that if there is any defects, it's it's uh, it's to their professional indemnity insurance that the claim will be made. No, and, be- I, and I believe that the people who sign them off will do that in an appropriate fashion. There is issues around that indemnity insurance. I'm sure Rebecca Moynihan, can you fill us in on that? Because that is there is a very hugely contentious issue around insurance in this area. It, it is a hugely contentious issue and I, I think it goes back to um, the, that question of for example who, who who is going to pay I think there's three main things that we need to focus in on here um, and hopefully the report which goes to the Minister at the end of the month will do it one is that it doesn't happen again and we're making sure that housing is being built now and the government are talking about 33,000 houses and um, o- over the next um 15 years it doesn't happen again we need a building standards agency as recommended in the safest houses report uh, the Oireachtas report secondly that the people who were involved in these construction defects are adequately punished and gone after for the construction defects and it's not necessarily I have very little sympathy for the construction sector in terms of a levy but we do need to make sure that future homeowners and future renters aren't paying for the mistakes of people in the past and there are still people who were involved 
involved in large scale developments that are now applying for planning permission again and we need to be able to change that to so make sure you, that they don't. So am I hearing from that then? You you wouldn't be in favour of a cross the board levy that you, you were talking about targeting the, the developers who are responsible for the defects? I, I, I think, I, I don't want to come down on a side in particular, I think there needs to be a form of a construction levy, but I think immediately what we should be trying to do is focus on the people who were responsible to begin with, some of whom are, are, are still very, very wealthy people and some of whom are still involved in the property industry and sector. But then lastly, and I think this is the most important part of it, and I thought it was interesting that Robert said that the report is coming at the end of this month and that the Minister will have time to consider it over the summer and then make provision for it in the budget. There actually is no time for that. right? The budget has been brought forward Forward and budget negotiations are ongoing now. And I think people who are living in unsafe environments um, need some certainty over the summer and in the budget. Firstly, that the construction defects will be retrospective because people are afraid to do works at the moment that are really badly needed because they're afraid that it's not going to be applied retrospectively. And secondly, that there is some relief for people even to get tax relief on an immediate basis. I understand that not everything is going to be able to be sorted for the budget, but there's certainly some certainty that they can give to homeowners who, through no fault of their own, find themselves in this situation. Okay, Darren O'Rourke. Uh, I agree. There, there needs to be uh, provision made in the in the budget when it, when it comes in September for, for a redress scheme. Um, we have indications what will be in the, the working group report and we we need to see that. But we, we need a commitment from government that there will be a redress, redress scheme and, that, and it would be provided for in the budget. Outside of that, you heard from Deirdre, systemic failures, you need a systemic response then in relation to it. I am very disappointed to hear from the Minister that, that he doesn't a, a, agree uh, that there needs to be a properly independent or maybe his understanding of independent is different from my understanding of it. And properly independent certification. Local authorities should be resourced to do that, and and uh, and the private sector. But basically, if, if developers needy. shouldn't be paying for their certification. Absolutely, so like he he who pays the piper calls the tune, you know, and, and that's and again, it's and, we're, and, and we're and, a, a clear, and we're clear here, we're not casting any aspersions on people's professional, uh, you know. Uh, absolutely, and and, and nor, am I, nor, nor am I. But the the notion independent needs to be independent, and and you know we have re- reduced those regulations o- over time. In in twenty fourteen, there was you know some 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 progressive moves, but it hasn't gone far enough. And I and I think it is fair to say that. There are practices, I think, you know, I was talking to my colleague Owen O'Brien, who was a, a rapporteur on that 2018 report, but if you if you look in Clondalkin and, and perhaps other places, there are um, uh, projects that were delivered post-2014 that, that are, you know, have, have significant yeah. uh, questions. Uh, let me them. just put that to the minute. Isn't it the case, Minister, that if I buy a new build apartment or house tomorrow and take out a 40-year mortgage uh, to, to pay for it, that, you know, if something turns up down the line, I have no comeback right now that that under the current legislation, it says I can go after the builder, but I can go after the company. But that company will be wound up and long gone before I have I can ever know that there was problems with the way my my apartment was built. But let's let's be clear. I I don't have any issue with uh, enhancing the regulatory system that's in place already. But I do genuinely believe that when you say that 
somebody can't independently certify you are calling into question their integrity as a professional person. Uh, uh, Institute of Chartered Engineers, they they have to have... Sorry, Minister, I think the proof is in the pudding that we're talking about up to 80% of housing that was built between 91 and 2013. And that's the indications of what's going to come from the report. I think the proof is there that it was a systemic issue and it wasn't a case of just a couple of people who weren't doing it. I think that is a systemic issue. And the Safe as Houses report, which was cross-party, by the way, um, and include government members and, and government parties. And what they called for is essentially a building standards agency, very like the Food Safety Authority, that can just go in, check and inspect and have a look. And, and restaurants are terrified of the Food Safety Authority and builders should be te- terrified of a building standards agency. And, and, and just to say, I accept that and that's why Minister O'Brien formed this working group and that's why they're concluding their deliberations now. But in 2014, the regulations did change. They were greatly enhanced and that's something we supported. And in 2014, the National Building Control Management Pro- Project was also introduced. So work has been has happened. Maybe more needs to be done and that's something that I'm of an open mind to. And that that, that call for, by dear Ginny Lyon, who you know, intimately knows this sector and what's going on in it, uh, the call that was saying that we need a national regulator. We need an office that is completely independent to oversee this because we're looking at three billion on top of the mic, on top of the pyrite. I mean, we can't afford to keep allowing this sector to regulate itself. You're very right. We, we cannot afford to continuously have uh, the taxpayer on a hook for all the defects of the past. And that's why uh, we need to look at uh, funding options. We need to look at a potential levy. And that's why we need to look at and we, uh, we ensuring need to have that an, we, fo- we follow. And, and well, is that something that we can consider in terms of the recommendations of this working group? Most, sef- most okay. definitely. OK, OK. We'll take a break. Tweet at Saturday RTE. Now, I'm happy to report that according to the Department of Children, no refugees spent the night at the old Dublin airport terminal last night and there was nobody there as we came to air. Now, Minister, I'm sure you're relieved to hear that, but of course, there is no guarantee that it's going to stay that way. We see the Irish Examiner reporting today that there was an average of 183 Ukrainian refugees arriving here every day now. And there's been, as we know, a five-fold increase in the number of asylum seekers from other jurisdictions arriving here. So I suppose my question is, like, it's been asked a lot over the last couple, what capacity? Like, where, where do we go next here? And, I, you know, we know Gormanstown is already more or less spoken for, uh, every bed there. So uh, wh- where do we go after that? I suppose if we put it in, in, into context globally, we now have more displaced citizens than ever before. There's 100 million people displaced globally. That's one in 78 people. Uh, and every country uh, is battling to, to respond in both a timely and a, a humane manner. Uh, and Ireland has both an international obligation in terms of the various directives, uh, but also a, mor- a moral obligation uh, to play a role. And I think despite the fact that there has been challenges, particularly in the last number of weeks, I think full credit must go to the various agencies and to the citizens across this country who collectively have put in a huge effort to accommodate so many people. Uh, Over uh, 40,000 Ukrainian citizens has arrived. And in parallel to that, uh, the number of people seeking international protection, that's people excluded on 
aside from Ukraine yeah. who are seeking protection has risen substantially. 2021, the total figure was 2,648 uh, up to 13th of July oh, okay. this year, over 7,000 people. So we're responding to a hugely uh, challenging situation. Um, My question was, Minister, where are we going to put them? Well, we have been able to house them um, up to this. Uh, continu- it continues to be a challenge uh, and we have utilised and Gormanstown camp. Uh, there continues to be offers coming in to uh, the department, to local authorities of other opportunities. We're looking at modular homes. We're looking at bringing into place uh, vacant properties. So there is a, a consorted effort uh, and a, a whole of government but, response but to this issue. that's all medium to long term with respect. And, you know, there's questions as well about the number of properties that have been offered and have been inspected and are supposed to be ready to go and, and nobody knows why they haven't been taken up yet. Like I'm talking about next week and the week after, there must be huge concern. I mean, is there a plan? We are dealing with a, a rapidly changing, evolving situation where we don't exactly know what numbers are arriving and or what numbers will arrive in a daily basis. And I think by any objective analysis, we have dealt with quite well to date. There has been challenges and there remains to be issues. But uh, buildings have been acquired. Buildings, uh, new, more buildings will be required. We are utilising uh, Gormanstown camp. Uh, the circumstances okay. and the the provision of, of, of housing is not ideal. Uh, but what people are saying when they arrive is the one thing that they're guaranteed okay. is they're guaranteed uh, I, so I'm sorry to food, to, to shelter, to we're, security. We're very short on time and I think we, we all know those points. I, I just want to get to what where this might go because we have the Taoiseach speaking about this week and he made an interesting comment that I, I, I'd like to get your take. Let's, let's just hear what he said in relation to this. I've convened the meeting today of all the relevant ministers uh, with a view to designing... Uh, the next uh, uh, set of responses uh, to deal with both uh, people fleeing war from Ukraine, but also uh, the international protection issue and the surge in numbers, um, and um, to get a deeper analysis of that, but also uh, to prepare a response from government in relation to that uh, development as well, which is, uh, is quite significant and is placing a considerable strain uh, on existing uh, state accommodation um, efforts. So th- that's where it stands right now. I don't want to go into too many specifics in terms of what a response might be, but we do have to look at the international protection system fairly immediately, given the numbers that we're seeing. Um, <clears throat> but just to sum up, we will, from a policy perspective, prioritise those who are fleeing war or very vulnerable situations. So, uh, Minister, what did he mean by that? We're going to have to look at the international protection and and prioritise people who are fleeing war. Is, is, he, is, that, is there a suggestion there that we're going to not... Is there not a legal obligation to uh, deal with everybody who comes here seeking protection? Well, I suppose he was speaking, and you'll have to ask him himself, but it... My my understanding is he was speaking in the context of the figures I outlined to you a minute ago, where in 2021, we 2,648 people uh, presenting to Ireland no, through no, the international... Yeah, we, we know and, that, but what but, does he but, mean by that? Are we not obliged to, to, to deal with everybody who, who we, we, comes? We, we, we are obliged, but we also are obliged to ensure that... Um, we process these applications in a timely way. We want to ensure that uh, we know anecdotally that perhaps the, the huge 
upsurge in the numbers coming are a result of perhaps uh, policies that have been taken under in a, ju- a different jurisdiction, i.e. in relation to the UK and Rwanda. We need to delve deeper into that to ensure uh, that, that that is a factual position. And as I said, we need to ensure that the people who are presenting here are, are legitimate. Sh- surely and we always ensure that. Why is he saying now we need to look at this and prioritise people fleeing war? Because there has been a huge upturn. Like, I mean, you, you seem to rubbish the fact that I'm making a, a comparison to 2021, 2648. Or if you even go back to 2019, the last full year pre-COVID, it was in approximately 3,000 people a year. Something has changed dramatically in relation to now, this year, there are 7,080 into, up to the 13th of, of July. So, a doubling so, uh, of numbers in half of the time. Are you, d- so there, are you the, doubting the, but, that but, they have... A, that that, that many of those people actually are what genuinely the, what, in need what, what of the protection. Say, what the Taoiseach has done, and I think he's right to do, he convened the relevant ministers to a meeting on Friday to assess what is happening and to come forward with a further response thereafter. OK. Um, Rebecca. This is so frustrating to listen to the minister um, because it's five months too late. Um, and we know that when a war breaks out on Europe's borders, we are going to have an influx of refugees. We know that. That's that's going to happen. We have 46,000 at the moment, which is actually much lower than some of the estimates of over 200,000 coming in. And it's very frustrating. Like, if I was in the Department of Children or even the Department of Housing, I think I would be very frustrated at other government departments that have access. And if you look at the Irish Times today, there was a report of correspondence between the OPW and the Department of Housing. And, and it seems to be like blackballing from the replies coming from the OPW and just pushing responsibility onto the Department of Housing saying, you need to be able to assess this. We can't do anything until you come back. This needs a whole government response working together, being knitted together and bringing it forward forward together rather than pushing the book to another department. Okay, uh, Darren. Yeah, um, it, it certainly has the feel of, uh, you know, not an emergency response to an emergency situation, almost business as usual in an emergency situation, a failure to plan and a failure to prepare. And I'm not convinced by either listening to the Taoiseach or to the Minister today that there is a clear and coherent plan. There are a number of recommendations, like from the Refugee Council of Ireland in terms of the the, the holiday homes and um, the offers that should be made to holiday home owners if that could return some dividend at a, 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 in a timely fashion the the large vacant buildings there were to be plans in relation to that they need to be rolled out and you know new buildings new building technologies um, uh, to, to, to rapidly roll out uh, 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 houses and, and high quality uh, accommodation at pace and we need this is symptomatic Would you of agree f- just very quickly because we're actually almost out of time now would you agree with the Thonishta uh, who said this week that we are not still taking our fair share? We need to we need to be generous in relation to this, and to do that, uh, we would you need, agree with we that? Need, we need we we need to we need to be generous in relation to it, and we need to plan to afford anybody that's coming here um, that they have appropriate accommodation. Okay, that's all. I, I, think, that's, I think it's, fa- it's sorry, unfair Minister, to say so that sorry, we're, we're there's over. a failure on government part. We've, oh. we've accommodated okay. 40,000 people in four months okay. at, at a time when we're coming out of a pandemic and our own housing crisis. We have done a lot, but more needs to be oh, okay. done. Okay, okay. Thank you for that. And that's all we have time for today and indeed for this season. I want to thank you all for uh, being with us out there uh, this season. We enjoyed your company and thank you to all my panellists who joined us as well. Uh, Andrew DePere was our broadcast coordinator. Cara O'Hare was on sound today. The programme was produced by Regina Hendley. Stay tuned for Saturday Sport with Joanne Cantwell and John Murray. 